This is Anything But Square, and you're listening to part two of Zach Bush and Joost Backer's Breathe Your Biome. For the first half of this presentation, be sure to check out episode one. Make yourself a cuppa and enjoy. Our glyphosate is used worldwide right now. In 2015, over 2 billion kilograms of glyphosate was used worldwide. 2 billion kilograms of a toxin. What this has done now to a water-soluble planet is that we have achieved now some 75% of our rainfall and 75% of the air we breathe is contaminated with Roundup in the United States. That's extraordinary. Our children can't breathe as the biome is destroyed, not just at the soil level, but within the air, within the clouds themselves, which are seeded by bacteria. Interestingly, we're now finding out that rain clouds can't form if there's not a specific species or family of bacteria in the air. Drought occurs when we kill the microbiome of the air. I find this very fascinating. The droughts that are wiping out Australia in the last few years and inducing the level of fires that we've never seen on the planet before, could it be because Australia in 2007, with a free trade agreement to China, China started making pennies on the dollar glyphosate so that Australia would no longer have to, to buy from the expensive chemical producers in the United States. Suddenly, Australia became the number one consumer of this chemical and the usage just went vertical. And in that consumption, wiped out its own microbiome. And from river systems to the air systems to cloud systems, suddenly there was not the fundamental life there to seed biology at its foundation. Turning back to cancer story here for a moment, because I want to keep drilling into you that the microbiome, the healthy soils of the, the, around us do not stop at the colon or the, or the skin. I think all of you have come to terms with the fact that the skin has bacteria on it. Even Dove now has this great new soap campaign that says that Dove is friendly to the microbiome. That's not how soap works not friendly to the microbiome. So I don't know how they got away with that, probably because that's an unregulated term. Nobody had ever tried to see if the FTC cared if somebody was friendly to the microbiome. So they're the first soap that's friendly to the microbiome. That's how excited we've become about bacteria on the skin. And we've come to the fact that we need probiotics in our gut, blah, blah, blah. And of course, do we really need probiotics? That's a whole other topic, really. Because the probiotic is what? It's three species of bacteria repeated at billions of copies that you then take orally every day. Oh my gosh, that's the equivalent of wiping out all the biodiversity of our grasslands all over the world and planting corn, soybean, and wheat everywhere. The same time that we did that, we introduced antibiotics to the world, wiped out the entire microbiome biodiversity of the gut, and gave them back three species. The probiotic industry is no different than the antibiotic industry in its effect on biodiversity. Some extraordinary studies came out just last year showing the ability of the, the probiotic to suppress the microbiome diversity at the same level of two weeks of antibiotics. We are so ingrained in the sim simplicity of, oh, good bacteria are good, without really looking at what Mother Nature does, which is diversity, diversity, diversity. This should inform our politics, I believe. Certainly in the United States, we need to stop building walls and we need to welcome in diversity so that we would broaden our viewpoints, broaden our creativity, broaden our capacity for love and thought and nurture. At every point, I don't care if it's in your gut, on the farm, or in your politics, if you are doing something against biodiversification, you are losing life. You are losing the state of being alive. And so I want to drill this home again with the cancer story here. This is a study that came out around breast cancer. It was the first look at the human breast as an as a organic garden. They biopsied women's with, um, breasts that had breast cancer within it, and they ran the genome for bacteria to see what bacteria were present in making DNA within that breast. And they found a, an amazing array of bacteria in, the, in that breast cancer and around the breast cancer. But there was always, regardless of what type of breast cancer it was, there was a dominant species 
called methylobacterium radiotolerance. And methylobacterium, dominant in every tumor, started to be thought of as maybe an infectious agent that was causing the cancer. Maybe we had been chasing the wrong path all the time. Maybe it wasn't genomic at all. Maybe it was an infectious disease that we call breast cancer when methylobacterium comes in. So they set out to prove that by biopsying the other breast of the woman to see what was going on there. It turned out there was a little bit of methylobacterium in there, but it was a minority. What was there dominant was Fingomonas. The healthy human breast with no cancer in it had this massive organic garden of Sphingomonas, which is a cousin to Pseudomonas, which is the scary bacteria that hurts people in the hospital systems and everything. What was that doing in all of these healthy human breasts? And so it's very beautiful to imagine a baby suckling on a human breast that is the extension of an extraordinary microbiome that's infusing it with nurture and nature. I love this vision. So they set out to see if the methylobacterium was causing the problem, since sphingomonas seemed to be healthy breasts, methylobacterium seemed to be diseased breasts. And so they, they decided to compare the rate of the aggressiveness of the cancer or, or the characteristics of that cancer and the rate at which that woman died to the load of methylobacterium in the breast. And of course, they found out the opposite of what they were expecting, was the more sterile that breast cancer got, the faster the woman died from that tumor. Just like the Alzheimer's brain that sprouts suddenly candida glabrata to support a damaged neuron, methylobacterium comes in when sphingomonas can no longer thrive because the breast is now inflamed and acidic and losing blood supply or losing good, good uh, food source. And methylobacterium comes into that stressed state to try to help palliate this tumor that's forming within the woman's breast. Methylobacterium is trying to keep her alive. And if we then give her chemo and, and antibiotics in our fear of this thing, and we kill all the methylobacterium, that tumor is more likely to kill the woman. We have to change our perspective to remember when we see human disease as an extension of a damaged ecosystem. It's not a human isolated condition whatsoever. And so it's with awe and a state of curiosity that I think we can keep turning these next pages of life. If all of this is right, then we should see a huge overlap between antibiotic exposure through glyphosate and rates of cancer. And so here's what you see. This is myeloid leukemia. In the black lines and the red lines, you see the amount of corn and soybean by acre increasing between 1992 and 2014. And so those blue lines, red lines going up, are then matched with the orange bars, which is showing the rise in prevalence of myeloid leukemia in our population. And so for every acre that we spray with glyphosate, we see an increase in leukemia. Same pattern here, this time for bladder cancer. This is important because bladder cancer is the hallmark cancer to identify toxins in water systems. And so historically, we've found many toxins and find, find out that they're car carcinogenic because suddenly a city or a town will suddenly start getting bladder cancer. And so bladder cancer is an important one to prove out this kind of carcinogenic toxicity in the water system. And so we see that perfect climb, blue and red lines. Again, number of acres of, of GMO corn and soybean planted, i.e. number of acres sprayed with Roundup, and the prevalence of, of bladder cancer in the population. Same thing with thyroid cancer, same thing with liver cancer. It just keeps happening. It's not just cancer. If we go back to the brain again, this is glyphosate usage and senile dementia here. And that includes Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Parkinson's is the dominant cause of uh, dementia in uh, males and the Alzheimer's in females. Combine those two, and you end up with this extraordinarily accurate map, again, of number of acres of glyphosate application uh, and the deaths per 100,000 of senile dementia. It doesn't have to get that bad to affect all of us. It you don't have to have cancer to map this thing out. Let's just look at sleep disorders here. Sleep disorders are the earliest sign of neurologic stress, neurologic dysfunction, a drop in neurotransmitters and the rest. Glyphosate usage now correlates perfectly with that same pattern. We're coming to terms with how that is through our study of neurotransmitters in the human gut. We now know that the human gut makes over 90% of the serotonin and more than 50% of the dopamine in the human body. 
And so your microbiome is not there just producing nutrients, it's literally producing the neurotransmitters that would give you strong brain function, strong resilient reaction to stress. And so one course of antibiotics, fractured sleep now, you can't get to sleep, you have insomnia, you have this or that, so you go take a sedative. Anxiety, depression go up. Across the board, the brain is suffering, whether in mild ways or severe ways, as we spray more and more antibiotic into our environment. The US now, just to, to make you guys feel better about yourselves here in Australia, ranks 35th in the world for health outcomes, and that's across all nations. We are very de much dead last in the 11th most wealthy nations of the world. We are the, the worst in health outcomes of all the developed nations. We've got a situation where war-torn countries like Croatia and, uh, and developing economies down in South America have far better uh, disease outcomes than we do in the United States. The U.S. is very proud to be number one in at least one thing all the time, though, and so we had to look for our number one highest, and that happened to be, unfortunately, death on day one. The United States is the most dangerous place to be on day one of life in the, whole, in the entire developed world. The only place that I could find that had worse outcomes on day one of life than the United States today is actually Somalia. We have done something catastrophically wrong in the birth canal into that first day of life. We have disrupted biology at a very fundamental level to ignite this level of, of disease and death on day one. And I would say that where we went wrong is around the vaginal canal. The vaginal canal happens to be the second conception, if you will, of that child. Because from mom and dad, it only got 20,000 genes. But in that travel down the, the birth canal, it will inherit two million genes from the bacteria. It will inherit two billion genes from the, from the parasite world, 125 trillion genes from the fungal world. And so we don't know which cross-section of those are coming through that vaginal canal. All we can say is in that hundreds of millions of complexity. And so if we are putting our mothers on antibiotics at different ports of their pregnancy, especially in those last couple weeks, even if they have vaginal delivery, they're gonna be deficient. But even more terrifying, in the United States and most of our cities, we're hitting rates of 40, 42% of C-section births. 40 to 42% of children coming to the world never get to transit that vaginal canal. Instead, they're cut through a surgical incision and removed from the uterus without ever touching that organic garden. And in that moment, they're set on a, on a gurney or at the bedside, and they inherit the hospital's flora. We're failing to plant the garden in our children, and they come out in a very compromised and vulnerable state. So this seems to be our trajectory of the Homo sapiens sapiens journey. We're speeding towards the cliff's edge, and I really find it fascinating that we've been gifted with the, the, the awareness of our own potential extinction. I don't think that 55 million years ago, when the asteroid hit and the whole world lost its topsoil, did you know that was the last extinction, was the death of the topsoil? Interesting, right? Layer of dust settles on all of the topsoil, chokes out the topsoil, and we lose 87% of life on the planet. And over 55 million year, years, the planet recovers, diversifies, creates the beauty that we see today. And then over a short two, three decades, a species comes out in and dumps a chemical all over her soils that wipe out her soils, and we suddenly see mass extinction across the planet. And so we're repeating a pattern that's happened five times before on the planet, which are these mass extinction events that happen due to damage to the soil and water systems. Homo sapiens, 200,000 years in the journey, and we can now map to about 70 to 100 years from now, extinction. We cannot have human biology present in more than 100 years at our current trajectory. That's kind of an extraordinarily close number. We all have children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews that we would see, like to see them grow to 78 years of age. But is that going to be the moment we blink out? And we shouldn't feel overly dramatic or self 
deprecating over that because we're just one of the many species. And currently, and this is actually even old data, this publication came out in 2002 out of University of Texas in Austin, showing that we were losing about one species to extinction every 20 minutes, round the clock, all year long, year after year. We had have, have now seen about a 10,000-fold increase in the rate of extinction over the, the previous baseline that had been pretty stable uh, for, for the 1,000 years before this last few decades. So massive 10,000-time acceleration of extinction on the planet. Species every 20 minutes. In 7,200 years, we could just join that and blink out. But I think we also have the opportunity to wake up. And that's why I'm so excited to be here with you guys, because again, we could do this differently. Now that we start to look at humanity, not as a single species evolving into some sort of apex experience, but instead finding a different purpose. I'm going to look now at the water systems uh, at a more global level. This is now uh, images from NASA looking down uh, at the planet. From NASA, this is the Mississippi tributaries lit up for you. And at the end of that, you see the dead zone that we've created in the Gulf of Mexico. The dead zone in bright red, if I blow it up there, the bright red is the dead, dead zone. We've put out millions and millions of dollars of fisheries out of business completely because there's literally just no fish left in that space. And then the threatened zone, the big yellow zone that you look and can see there is nearly the size of Texas. So this massive dead zone now covering that space has really kind of spread this legacy of soil damage and all of that from the Mississippi and the human cancer pattern out into the oceans. This is what those dead water systems can look like. This was last summer in the Mississippi River itself, a freshwater system exploding with algae to try to control the damage to that nutrient system and beyond. This is the dead zone in the ocean. If that's the dead zone of, of the ocean by man's hand, we can also look uh, to the patterns of biodiversity in the grasslands that covered so much of, of the irritable land that we have on the planet. The grasslands have now been turned into rows like this, where you see the, the damage done to the soil between these thin rows of green that are pumped full of NPK fertilizers and all kinds of chemicals to try to create life in the midst of a, a barren soil that has been denuded and exposed to the elements around the course of the year. And many of you have been taught that this is the way to farm. This is the way to create uh, you know, enough scalable food system for those that we would feed. And yet we have to come to terms with this is an insane approach if we're going to wipe out 90% of the surface area of that farm to justify the 10% of the green. It gets worse in the wintertime. In the United States, farmers have been trained that this would be a, an extremely messy field, and this is the way that you're supposed to leave your field all winter. This is a big problem because in the winter, when you see that biomass dried up and dying, this is exactly when all the nutrients from, from those explosive growth seasons of spring and summer are returned into the soil, and now the mycelium get to go crazy. And the fungi traffic these nutrients all over the farm. For hundreds and thousands of acres broad, the mycelium can redistribute nutrients as the grasslands die or the cover crops are returned into the ground. But our Midwest farmers are taught to, to disc that soil into cleanliness uh, by fall so that it sits fallow looking completely bare with no biologic material to turn back into the mycelial bed and, and the bacterial bed. They were taught this by the agronomists. They were taught this by the agricultural systems that make their money selling the inputs back into that farmer. And so it was through this kind of slippery slope of, of ulterior motives, perhaps, of making more money on the input, inputs that perhaps taught us this. Or maybe we just loved the, the control. And a lot of the farmers I've talked to in the Midwest are like, no, that's not really it, Zach. It's actually just like, we disc when we're bored. Like, there's this point where you just don't have anything to do, so you just go out and disc so that you got a concrete result, and it looks cleaner. And so they're just kind of vacuuming, if you will. You know, just go out and vacuum when you're bored, and they'll disc that soil down. And so I think that there's a possibility that we have really done something so simple in the end that could so easily be reversed. 
And it's not just the plant life that we've done this to. The protein industries have completely eliminated anything green. And so we have this world of dust, this world of dead soil and dead dirt that we raise our crops on, raise our animals on, and then we ponder why they're so sick. In the United States now, our poultry industry is facing one-third of the flock dead by the time they're able to harvest those boiler chickens at six weeks of age. At six weeks of age, a third of the, of the birds are dead from invasive bacterial infections because there's no microbiome at all. There's just a few species left that can tolerate this level of decimation to mother nature, and they tend to wipe out biology around them. Unfortunately, it's a global problem. Soil degradation map of the whole world showing us now that about 97% of the agricultural soils around the planet have been degraded or severely degraded. The only stable soils that we see around the planet are in the high north latitudes where we haven't been able to farm. This is the tundras up above Canada, the tundras up above Russia, China, or the deserts, or the high mountains. And so this is really the, it's the only places we couldn't farm that still have some soil left. Everything else degraded or very degraded. This is an extraordinary map. This, this graph just blows my mind here. This is Australian agricultural land use between 1996 and 2012. Very short period of time. This is from the Australia State of the Environment uh, document that was created in 2016. And what this is showing you in tan at the top of these bars is the amount of acreage in, uh, by percent in Australia that grows more than three crops or three crops or more. In the light green are two crops or more. And in the dark green is zero crops. And if you, if you can read down at the bottom, it says no, no crops apart from herbicide spraying. And so in the dark green bar, the only purpose of that land is to be sprayed with herbicide. That is an extraordinary statistic. We have just simply stopped growing food and we're now using agricultural land to spray more weed killer. We're not even trying to grow anything out of it. I don't know what's driving this, but if I was your legislators, I'd want to drill down on this. What are we doing here that we stopped growing food? And where are we importing that from now? You guys are importing more and more of your food just as we are in the United States. In the United States, our most agricultural state is Kansas. 90% of the land in Kansas is under agricultural use. And it imports 90% of its food. And one in four children in Kansas is going hungry, doesn't have enough food. Whatever we're doing with farmland, it's no longer growing food. It seems to have been turned into methods for spraying. And I don't honestly know your Australian government well enough to know that it may be the same as in the United States here. But in the US, I think we see these same patterns because farmers are making most of their money from subsidies. In many states, farmers are getting paid government taxpayer subsidies to grow corn, soybean, or some other sugar beet, sugar cane, as it may be. In the end, if we have a glut, they'll be paid not to grow anything. And so if we have too much corn, soybean, and the rest, we'll pay those farmers not to produce a crop. And so a lot of farmers will simply sign up every year for their, their subsidy, and they get the check, and they never put anything in the ground. But they sure dissed it well, and they sprayed once or twice with an herbicide, and so I think our land map looks a lot like this. Every year since 1996, less land being actually grown and more land just being sprayed and kept denuded for non-agricultural incomes. There's a movie that came out in the 1990s of a, of a lecture uh, that was called The Inconvenient Truth. And Al Gore kind of shocked the world with the message that we're creating so much carbon dioxide that we're going to induce massive climate change and we're going to melt the ice caps and the horrific things are going to happen on the planet. Irreversible biologic damage is going to be done. That became a very important catalyst for change in the United States and, and worldwide for behavior around carbon production. 
But I think that if we back up today and realize that life is about the microbiology and soil mechanics and water mechanics, we may have missed the boat a little bit on the message that we're creating climate change for all the carbon dioxide we're producing. There's a couple of problems with that argument. One is that carbon is the thing that drives life on the planet. And so to say that this is the great poison that's killing our planet is very far stretch when it comes to the organic chemistry or microbiology. Because it turns out that the CO2 in the air is exactly what makes the carbohydrate in a plant or the fatty acid in a plant or an animal. Carbohydrates and fatty acids are simply large chains of carbon and oxygen that are literally produced by the mechanics of the plant and the bacteria and the fungi to produce carbohydrates and fats that our bodies would then run on, or the plants would then run on, or the animals would run on, or the microbiology of the soil would run on. Take a look at how much carbon is needed in these different systems. The topsoil alone needs 2,300 gigatons of carbon. Back when this was produced, we were producing about nine gigatons out of Western countries. Worldwide, we're around 30 gigatons of carbon production. 30 gigatons of carbon versus 2,300 capable of being absorbed into our soil systems. The ocean itself exudes 90 and, and absorbs 90 gigatons of carbon, many fold the amount of CO2 that we're engaged with. The plants make 60 gigatons of carbon, CO2. We're told that trees breathe in CO2, right? But nobody told you that they also breathe out CO2. Twice as much CO2 is being produced by the, the plant life on, on the planet than our, is all of human behavior put together. And so is it possible that the inconvenient truth was only half true, was that we were starting to get an accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? And the obvious conclusion was, it's because we're making too much carbon dioxide. But we hadn't considered these bigger systems of carbon exchange to realize that we weren't producing too much CO2. We simply killed the lungs of the planet and it couldn't breathe it back in. And that's the mechanics that we disrupted. When we killed the soil, we killed the ab ability of the microbiome and the plant life therein to pull that CO2 back into its existence. There's a potential massive problem in this half-truth that we told ourselves, is that now in the United States, we're putting out billions of dollars of grants to technologies that could pull CO2 out. And this, this term carbon sequestration has become a massive fad for technology and impact investment and the like. But if you look at this map of carbon on the planet, the first thing that should be obvious is you do not want to sequester carbon at all. Carbon needs to be in a cycle constantly because it is the language and the currency of life on the planet. Without carbon and carbon moving, we cannot generate a green plant. We cannot generate a microbial diversity within the soil or our gut. We cannot create the carbon di car carbohydrates and fatty acids that we need to run on. Carbon sequestration is the wrong direction. We killed the lungs of the planet when we killed her topsoils. In the United States, we're losing one to two tons of topsoil from every acre of American farmland every year. If you count up the amount of resources that goes into a ton of soil, and you then multiply that out by our 120 million acres or so, of, of uh, farmed land, you end up finding out that we are losing 11% of our gross domestic product every year in the form of soil washing down into our rivers. 11% of GDP is remarkably similar to our current healthcare costs. Is it possible that the healthcare costs are always gonna map the amount of soil that we're losing? It seems obvious on a planet that breathes and lives carbon that if you're dumping carbon out into the oceans and it is now sequestered in places that cannot get into our food system, we're going to have the rays of chronic disease at the same cost of the soil that got washed down the rivers. I'm intrigued by that balance of carbon. Is it possible that we are really seeing not just a dust storm in the United States, we are in the largest dust bowl that we've ever been in in regard to that soil loss, but we're actually in a biologic storm. We're in a biologic collapse where carbon can no longer cycle.
this storm was hitting Phoenix in, in late 2018. I like seeing these storms to remind myself that our national news is doing a very bad job of reporting the problem. These never really made national news. They certainly didn't make international news. These dust storms are more than a mile in height as they bury these cities. So we were coming to terms with this possibility of mass extinction on the planet when I started uh, on the farms a couple years ago. We, our team set out to start to, to create a documentary film to tell farmers of the problems with human health that we're seeing from the detriment of carbon and carbon cycling and organic processes happen. And we set out to just tell them. We wanted a, a film that would just explain to them the problem we saw in our labs and of the cancer growth and everything I've shared with you. And on our very first trip out, we met Alan Williams, and Alan was just kind of gabbing with me on, on the way to a farm, and we're sitting in, in a truck, and he's chatting. He says, Zach, I don't want to freak you out, but did you know that we only have 60 harvests left on planet Earth? And I said, well, explain that to me. He said, at the rate of loss of topsoil globally, there's only 60 more harvests that we can expect to have, and then we will have complete famine worldwide. And I was blown away that his 60 years was so damn close to the 70-year expiration date that we were seeing on the human biology side. But wouldn't that have to be the case if biology is so interlaced as we've seen tonight? If the microbiome is the foundation of human life and biologic life within the soils, isn't it obvious that the extinction rate of the soil would equal that of our own sperm counts. Our own reproductive capacity would have to equal that of the soil because we're all part of the same biologic process. And so once again, we're reminded of the short time that we have to change everything. And yet this is not what we're talking about in the news. We're talking about coronavirus. But let's take a look at coronavirus for a moment because I want you to think more acutely about this soil biology story that we've told so far. And I want you guys to start thinking critically about our media and what they're telling us about not just this virus, but flu as a whole. If there are 10 to the 31 viruses, and my bloodstream is full of viruses right now because we now realize that my mouth is full of things like spirochetes that we think are Lyme disease and all this, those live normally in my mouth all the time. I've got over 15 species of spirochetes in my mouth at any given moment, and that makes me healthy. And I've got probably tens of thousands of different viruses that are coursing through my bloodstream, in my gingival environment, in my gut, in my lungs at any given second, and they're updating my software all the time. I'm getting new genome injected into my cells all the time by these viruses, and I'm adapting. And so I'm adapting to my environment constantly by this microbiome input. Then we see something like coronavirus come up, and we can actually then ask some simple questions. If we see viruses acting suddenly differently, we have a radically new virus on the planet, we know we had a genome shift. That was what makes a new strain of coronavirus or whatever it is, is a big genetic shift in that species. And so what we can say confidently is, something happened to the greater microbiome in, in the center of China that would have triggered a genomic shift. And I don't know if it's circulating here in Australia, but we've heard rumors in the United States, well, maybe it's a militarized thing, and certainly the U.S. military and other militaries have patents out on coronaviruses and all this. So maybe it was a military release of a coronavirus, or maybe it snuck out of a, a military lab and all of that. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, there's no lab in the world that can compete with the toxicity of our farmland for breeding microbial injury and the need for genomic shift. And so I looked up these maps in these last couple weeks. This is looking at soil carbon depletion across that whole strip of, of China into India there and portions of Africa. So you can see immediately that India and China are the most destroyed carbon systems uh, throughout probably the whole planet, but certainly in that region of the world where we see these viruses stemming from. Here, and perhaps it's hard to see from where you're sitting there, but you'll see the epicenters of uh, the, the, the carbon depletion at a closer rate. And so those red flames within the Chinese uh, environment there, as we zoom in on China, are the areas of the greatest depletion of carbon in their soil systems. 
And now this is the epicenters of the, the coronavirus over the last few weeks in China. And it turns out that, that those big red spaces that you can see on the screen there, uh, or those circles expanding out, overlap really nicely at their epicenters with the reddest spots on the, on the carbon, carbon map. And so, in other words, the more damaged the soil gets in the area, the more likely we're going to see coronavirus coming out of that space. And doesn't that just make sense? The bacteria keep the viruses in check. The fungi keep both bacteria and viruses in check. Remember that bread mold is what penicillin is. So our discovery of antibiotics was from the molds. We think of, oh, mold exposures, that's terrible. Well, that's what penicillin is. This is an extract from bread mold that kills bacteria. So the mold and the, and the, and the fungi and the yeast, they're all competing for space. And if you wipe out the entire system of bacteria and fungi and the like, and you're only left with viruses, they're going to be swapping information as fast as possible to try to get genomic diversity and an adaptation back into the biology so that it will do its thing well. So it's possible we have a militarized virus. But if we think about what's happening in your typical pile of, of swine stool, things get a little bit crazy. So this, this is one of the many articles that have looked at uh, the stool of swine and manure piles of, in uh, agricultural, chemical agricultural systems. And so they're looking at the speed at which there's a transport across uh, the animal to the bacteria to the viral to the parasitic kingdoms there as the, uh, as the environment gets more and more toxic. In the United States, it's actually illegal to transport swine stool across state lines. It's so toxic. It's, it's considered a biohazard. Same with our feedlots, biohazard, illegal to transport uh, feedlot stool across state lines because of this phenomenon. These are biohazard, biologic, biochemical breeding grounds for, for weaponry. And so it's possible that some government lab has bred a coronavirus, but from what I know so far in my scientific career, I would say that there's not a, a, a government lab in the world that could compete with a pile of shit. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen. It's too big of a pool to, to be able to do anything even approaching that level of chemistry and that level of swapping of genomics that you would get in an acre or some of these stool piles now in the United States, in South Carolina, for example, we have, we have tens of billions of gallons of, of stool material stored up in these le behind levees. One of these levees broke in North Carolina some uh, five or six years ago, and it killed millions of fish instantaneously as that toxic waste went into the river systems of North Carolina. Indiana right now, one of our agricultural states up in the Midwest, Indiana, 80% of the rivers within that state have now been deemed to be unsafe for recreational use. Not just not potable, you shouldn't even put your foot in that water. 80% of the rivers. And so the level of toxicity, I, I just keep painting for you because I don't think that you could overspeak this. We've gotten to such a level of insidious collapse that coronavirus had to happen. Influenza has to happen every year to try to reduce our number. The microbiology has to adapt to a species that is consuming this planet faster than any other biologic process ever has. We are the cancer on the planet right now. And we're all participating in small ways and big ways in that process which means that we can change everything. Causation and correlation, if it's there, means that we have in our control the ability to reverse the whole process, and we can do it extremely quickly. I've shown you a bunch of correlation tonight. I've shown you maps of glyphosate spraying, acres sprayed, cancer rates going up, autism rates going up, and all this. That's a bunch of correlation. That's dangerous to do in the science world. In the science world, you better make sure that somebody comes in and shows you causation. And so that's been my main passion and purpose over the last six or eight years with my science team. I created my own basic science lab, and we've been really on a mission to figure out how Roundup directly causes these events in the biology. 
And this is the first bit of data we came up with about six years ago. This is Dr. John Gilday, brilliant uh, microbiologist out of Johns Hopkins who, who, who really discovered this process. What he's showing here is on the left, this is the small intestine, uh, the, the surface of the small intestine, which is one cell layer thick. It's our, it's our primary boundary between the outside world and the human body. Our gut membrane covers two tennis courts in surface area compared to just the one and a half meters or so of our skin surface. So our gut is our biggest exposure to the outside world. And the green lines that are lighting up there for you, this is the tight junction system. This is the Velcro that holds each of those billions of cells together to create one coherent cellophane-like barrier system between the outside world and your immune system that sits right behind this membrane. 60 to 70% of the human immune system is engineered to be in the one or two millimeters right behind that single cell barrier. On the other side of the slide, you're seeing glyphosate at 20 parts per million, which is not an uncommon amount to see in a conventional strawberry or root vegetable, something like potatoes uh, or the like, that are grown under conventional chemical agriculture with glyphosate exposure. Just 16 minutes of exposure and you see the gut membrane blow apart. And now you have a bunch of free-floating cells that are no longer connected. The Velcro fell apart. This was the first evidence that we had that there was a direct human injury from glyphosate. Before this moment, we thought that the damage was being done just indirectly by damaging the microbiome and acting as an antibiotic and then because we didn't have the microbiome, but something insidious is here. There's direct damage from this chemical right to the biggest barrier system to the outside world. Put in a different way, the human gut lining is the beginning and the definition of self-identity at the microbiology level. You don't know what's inside and outside. You don't know what your immune system should attack or support if this gut membrane blows apart. If you lose that membrane, you have lost self-identity. And now it's just a matter of time before you are at risk for an autoimmune disease because your immune system now chronically activated from everything that you touch, breathe, drink, and eat has to fight. Your immune system is constantly activated. And so we should see a lot of chronic inflammation in the population if we blow apart the gut lining, which of course is at the foundation of every chronic disease we've talked about tonight, from Alzheimer's to autism, from cancer to acne, that chronic inflammation is at its base and we're blowing apart the gut membrane with this chemical Roundup or glyphosate. If we go back to try to figure out how is it possible that the glyphosate is blowing that apart, we can actually just go back to Monsanto's own patents on this chemical. It turns out that glyphosate blocks an enzyme pathway called the shikimate pathway. The shikimate pathway is a complicated enzyme pathway. I'm showing you just the tip of the iceberg here with these few chemical transactions here. But what, what is happening at the end of the shikimate pathway is the production of a few important amino acids. The amino acids are the 22 building blocks that line up along a, a messenger RNA to create a protein out of the DNA that we talked about earlier. And so the amino acids are like Legos, each one a different shape, and the DNA comes along, makes an RNA. RNA then grabs all the Legos of the right shapes and sizes and builds a human body. Through the plasticity that you have, we know that you could build over four million different bodies with the genes that you have today. But the amino acids have to be present. And it turns out nine of our 22 building blocks we can't make. And so we call those the essential amino acids. So the essential amino acids have to be gotten from your microbiome or from the food that you eat. And with that, you can build an extraordinary complexity, over 280,000 different proteins out of those 22 building blocks. The shikimate pathway makes three of those nine critical building blocks that we can't make. And the shikimate pathway makes phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan. And these are the building blocks for things like proteins, the alkaloids, which are the medicine within our foods, hormones, and neurotransmitters. If we start to eat food that's grown under the pressure of Roundup, and it can, neither the microbiome or the plant itself can make those three essential amino acids, we have to start building bodies that are built of proteins that are misspelled. And so imagine a population of humans being developed in the womb that are short a few Legos. 
and now you don't have that, that blue block with the four buttons on it, and you have to go adapt something else, and you get the wrong Lego in there, and now you have a misshapen enzyme. And that enzyme's not gonna work as well. And so we have this extraordinary situation right now. Well, mom, with baby in the womb, has got her biggest barriers to the outside world blown apart by the constant exposure to Roundup. She's leaking, chronically inflamed, chronically deficient in microbiome because every bite of food she eats, the water she drinks, the air she breathes, the rain that falls is drenched in that antibiotic. And then at the same time, her womb is trying to knit together a baby that's missing some of those Legos and it's now become very vulnerable to the injury that it will receive on the other side of the womb. And so I find it interesting to then think about all right, so we've set ourselves up for this massive chronic disease explosion, but it's not just for the chemicals. Once you blow apart that gut lining, we become sensitive to everything we consume, and we develop new diseases out of that. This is the one that we now call gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. And so it turns out that our lab's been able to show that if you put gluten and glyphosate in the same bite of food, you have this massive synergistic injury to the gut lining. If anybody's gluten sensitive in here, you know that the first symptoms of gluten sensitivity isn't necessarily the bloating and the gut discomfort, it's actually brain fog and headache and fatigue and poor sleep quality and loss of sex drive. It's the neurologic system that collapses first. And so it's fascinating to take a look at this pattern that started in the 1990s 1992, 93, we started spraying wheat with glyphosate, putting gluten and glyphosate in the same bite of food, and then within two years, we have a massive epidemic of, glyph of gluten sensitivity. And so we don't actually have gluten sensitivity, we have glyphosate poisoning, is what I now call it. Because my patients with severe gluten sensitivity in the United States simply have to get on an airplane and fly the, the six-hour flight over to, to France. And on the streets of Paris, you have to eat croissants. It's required by law. And so you eat your croissant, and you're blown away that you have no brain fog, no sleep disorder. You feel sexier than you ever have because you're in the suites of Paris, and you're eating croissants all day long. And you come back, and you're like, Doc, I'm totally cured of my gluten sensitivity. I'm like, that's awesome. Just don't eat a croissant here. Well, they can't help it because they know they just ate croissants last week, and they felt fine, so they eat a croissant in the United States. And within half an hour, brain fog, poor sleep quality. It takes them three days to recover from that stupid if they're not gluten sensitive. Gluten's been in the diet for thousands of years and remains an important aspect of, of an amazing amount of indigenous uh, wisdom and, and culture and everything else around the world. It's when we add glyphosate to it that we suddenly create a toxin out of the mess. Deeper than that is these things called mitochondria that live within ourselves. And the mitochondria produce all the energy that we, we live on. And they're the ones that take the carbon that is in a fatty acid or, or a carbohydrate and turn that into fuel for us. And they do that through these complex shapes that are made of these actin filaments, those red lines holding those green ethereal looking bugs that live within our cells are just beautiful under the microscope. The actin holds those mitochondria in their full function, and when the actin becomes damaged, which we've now shown it happens again through the glyphosate exposure, the mitochondria can't produce as much energy. And so whether it's the tight junctions falling apart or the mitochondria losing their potential, we start to see this consistent cascade of effects happen as we charge towards the toxicity. When those cells fall apart in the gut lining, it's not just the Velcro that's falling apart, it's also these things called gap junctions. Gap junctions are fiber optic cables that run between the cells, and they passage the energy made by the mitochondria that live within our cells to one, from one cell to the next. And so, so these are under electron microscopy now, as you zoom in on those cables, you see each of those tubes are perfectly formed fiber optic cable, and at the end of each of those tubes is an aperture, just like you would find on a camera lens. And so in an extraordinary fashion, what I'm trying to show you tonight is something bizarre and beautiful, which is, in the end, you are a carbon digestive plant. 
CO2 comes from the atmosphere, goes into the soil. Soil turns that into nutrients for a plant. Plant turns that into a carbohydrate. Carbohydrate goes into your body. Carbohydrate then traffics to a mitochondria, which is non-human. It's a bug that lives inside your cells, has non-human DNA. It then takes that carbohydrate and breaks that down into single carbon chains that we call CO2 and, and expires that into the atmosphere again to be passed back into the soil and done again. And what that mitochondria produces in the meantime is electromagnetic field or light energy. That's what it turns all the carbohydrates into is electrons or light energy. And that light energy is then passaged between from cell to cell through this fiber optic tube system. You are actually a light being that is designed to move light from one cell to another. And when you cut with glyphosate, all of the connections between the adjoining cells, the light goes out. And it turns out that cancer is the dimmest cell in the body. It is a cell that's lost its light source. It can no longer produce energy in the same way, so it starts to accumulate injury, just as the aging process does. And so this rapidly aging cell that cannot repair itself has only one option left to survive, which is to replicate. And so in fast replication, it will become a tumor. And that tumor, we then say, is this horrible invader that's killing the body, and it's this dangerous and fearsome thing. In fact, it's the dimmest, most depleted cell within the body, and it just is begging to be reconnected to the system. And so that's the excitement that we have, is that we now have the opportunity to dive into the possibility that the microbiome could bring all of this back on. Mother Earth is our patient guardian. And in her soils 60 million years ago, that's five million years before the last great extinction, we find in her fossil record an extraordinary array of microbial metabolites, and we now call these carbon snowflakes. Bacteria and fungi, each within their species, is making in a huge array of these carbon snowflakes, and they function as an antenna system or a wireless communication network. Just like your cell phone, if you're further than seven miles from the closest cell phone tower, you suddenly can't communicate with the world. And you become isolated, and you start to fracture the software, and you can't update, and you can, cannot communicate with your group, and you become isolated. That's a cancer cell in its heart, again, is the most isolated, lonely, shut-down cell within the body. And we find out that the communication network between the cells is not human, but microbial. And so if you have a rich enough microbiome producing a huge variety of these carbon molecules, you'll get wireless communication network throughout the system, and you get repair at an extreme rate. And so on the far left in our lab, the small intestine blows apart then with glyphosate exposure, but then putting the communication network, not the bacteria and the fungi themselves, but just the communication network that they would produce, and the whole thing laces itself back together with in a matter of moments. And so this beautiful resilience is demonstrated to us through the communication network of the microbiome is that it can be more powerful than the worst toxins we can come up with. And so this has now been shown in our labs to be resilient up to 20,000 times more Roundup than you would see in your diet today. The microbial network can take care of it. It will heal your gut lining faster than 20,000 times the Roundup level in your food system can do the damage. And so in the end, we've been able to publish in a couple different ways this resilience that Mother Nature is saying, is that if you will take care of my soils again, I will make you resilient to every toxin you could have ever come up with. I will make you resilient to every malady known on Earth by reconnecting one cell to the next and passaging light energy at a level that's never been passaged before, and you will turn into light beings that you've never witnessed, and you will see each other more clearly, and you will treat each other with more respect, and you will start to act as if you really cared for one another. When the lights go back on through the communication network of the microbiome, all kinds of beautiful things happen. You see this explosive protection quality. The higher the bar, the more protection you're getting at the small intestine, at the colon. This is at the blood-brain barrier. Again, the high bars are these bouncing qualities as we put damaged tissues back in contact with the microbial intelligence, the microbial communication network. We can see these 20%, 40%, 200%. 
uh, improvements. And so it was very exciting to put these into human supplements. We could then take this 60 million year old soil, put the communication network into bottles and passage them into kids with autism, people with cancer, whatever it was, and just see their organic garden start to support their body in a different way as we turn the lights back on, see what their body wants to do. The communication network doesn't heal anything in and of itself. It's the human cells that heal themselves but they need the communication between them. That was an exciting day, that was an exciting time, but we knew that that was just a stepping stone. It's the science behind the communication network that would actually do the thing. So instead, we've turned all of our attention from those companies and all of our profits from those companies back into this message of we need to breathe the biome. We need to stop this onslaught of death of carbon, death of biology on the planet, and we need to turn it back into life abundant. And so we push, a huge path for the physicians. We asked them to really refocus their attention in communication with mothers as they head towards birthing. Vaginal birthing is the most fundamental way we could change public health on the planet today. Vaginal birthing, and if a C-section becomes necessary because mom's weak or things get complicated, things are there, she's exhausted, whatever the scenario, and suddenly a C-section is necessary, you can once again replant the garden immediately with vaginal swabbing. Swab that vaginal canal with, a, with that large cotton swab that's available in the, in the birthing center and rub that baby down with mom's vaginal flora. Coat the skin, the ears, the nares, the mouth, the eyes. Get that baby covered in mom's microbiome. Plant the garden. You will change the trajectory of that child's life so profoundly through that simple thing. And then get that baby outside as soon as possible. Breathe in the nature. I'm concerned that we're all hiding away now from coronavirus. That's the opposite of what we should be doing. We should be engaging with Mother Earth to find her abundance so that a virus like corona would not even be necessary. Grow your own food. I'm so excited about this movement that we see here in Melbourne. Yost and so many others here are really pushing the agenda of, we don't need to just change the farming system, we need to change the food system. At the end of the World War II, the United States was growing 40% of its food in its backyard victory gardens. 40% of the food was being grown in backyard gardens. Now we grow less than 0.1%. We stopped growing the food and then we outsourced it and now we bitch about chemical companies growing monstrous amounts of food or commodities. We did that through our own laziness. And so I'm very excited to see this movement afoot of micro-gardening. It only takes a couple square feet to grow an abundant amount of, of fruits and vegetables through a portion of the year. And so I'm excited to see us go back into that micro-gardening, get our own hands in the dirt. As soon as you touch the earth, your food that grows in it, your microbiome is enriched. Your connection with Mother Nature is profound. And so we call each other to stand barefoot in the grass and soil. I ask you to garden differently, because if you're anything like the typical American gardener, before you go outside, you boot up with rubber boots, rubber gloves, maybe a mask, a massive hat to make sure no sun touches you, and then you go out and you, and you spray some chemicals on the weeds, and then you go in and you're proud of yourself for gardening. You never even touched Mother Earth on that journey. And so get engaged. Nakedness totally gets extra credit all the time from me. Eat fermented foods daily. We got so lazy with refrigeration. And when we, when we lost fermentation as a daily part of our experience, we lost this extraordinary interaction, not with the microbiome of plants. Remember, wild fermentation is the connection to the air itself and the microbes that would then come and, and uh, you know, digest that, that extraordinary ferment in its, in its flask. And so we need to stay engaged with that fermenting system. In general, you need to hug, kiss, and celebrate every human, animal, and plant that you can touch. In this day of the coronavirus, there's this hesitation to touch somebody around you. But an extraordinary study was recently done where they looked at the rates and risk of viral infection and the number of hugs received. And they showed that if you had more than five or seven hugs a day, you had a 30% decrease in likelihood of getting flu. 30% drop in influenza by getting hugs. I love that message. It is in the connection that we will find our health. It's in our connection that we will get the biodiversity. If you don't have enough hugs in the day, then certainly get that puppy. <laughs> get the microbiome some way. 
get engaged, love each other, kiss each other, get up in that microbiome. <laughs> Carbon cycling, Mother Earth's currency, we have to remember that if we apply these things on a planetary level, we can heal her very quickly. And I want to leave you with this reality that if we improve by just 0.4% the amount of active carbon in the world's agricultural soils, we will completely reverse our contribution of greenhouse gases to climate change. 0.4% improvement. It's such a tiny amount because currently we average about 1% active carbon in our soils agriculturally. But through regenerative farming that's now afoot in Australia and the United States and many other environments, we can not just do 0.4%, we can actually take that 1% and turn it into 4% over about a three-year period. That's a 300% improvement, not a 0.4% improvement. Some of these farms, 300, 500,000 acre farms in the United States under regen for 10 years are hitting carbon levels of 8% and 10%. If we can 800% increase the carbon consumption of our soil systems, imagine what we can do for Mother Earth herself. Imagine how much carbon we can cycle from air back into soil, back into plants, back into more light energy to passage from one cell to the next. I really believe that we could glow. Some extraordinary recent studies are showing that one cubic centimeter of mitochondria can produce 10,000 times more energy than one cubic centimeter of the surface of the sun. When we stop sequestering carbon and start cycling carbon, we will light up. We have a camera in my clinic that we actually do that with. It's made in Russia. It's a cool camera that images the human energy field. And, in fact, and it is beautiful to see people glow. This is what it looks like in just some soil testing that we just did last year. 100-day soil test in tomato plants. This is a typical uh, root uh, ball at the end of a 100-day growing cycle on a tomato plant. It's a couple times the size of that guy's hand. Uh, you can see the, the size of the plant. It, it produced three and a half pounds of tomatoes, which was pretty, pretty impressive. Except when we did carbon cycling and got the microbial communication network reconnected in the, in the bins right next door, the root ball was larger than the guy's entire torso. And it produced 32 pounds of tomatoes from that single plant. That's almost a tenfold increase in productivity of a plant when we stopped sequestering carbon and pouring nitrogen in and stopped pouring nitrogen and instead pour carbon in. Carbon is the lifeblood of this planet, and we need to start doing it. So in the same way as the list of being healthy humans, we need to do the same for our soils. So we're pushing a regenerative movement, and you guys are much a part of that. Stop tilling the earth. Allow the microbial diversity and the fungi to come into that space. We're looking to eight to 32 species of cover crops to diversify the ecosystem on the surface and then become an armor over the rest of it when we stop trying to plow that under and instead leave it on the surface of the, other with, uh, of the, of the soil with high-intensity grazing using cattle, poultry, sheep. High-intensity grazing is in, in the pattern in which we move the animals constantly. Every six hours, you move them to another paddock. And these are electrical ribbons that are laid out so that you can drop the ribbons quickly and move them to the next paddock so they never get to stay in the same place for more than half a day. You want them constantly moving so that they don't do an over amount of damage, but what they do do is knock down your biodiversity into armor on top of the soil, and then the degradation of those dying plants feed the microbial system back into their diversity and thriving state. If there aren't animals uh, able to be reintegrated into the farming system, as in much of the United States, our farmers no longer know how to care for animals, they just know how to grow row crops, and so for them, we're encouraging them to move to roller crimpers, where you allow the, the machine to just roll and crimp that, that cover crop down onto the surface of the soil again, and then instead of plowing it bare to plant your seed, you use a seed drill, and it drops those seeds in a few inches below the soil or to the appropriate depth, and your, your crop grows up through that now armor on top of the soil. 
Herbicide-free is so powerful. When you stop killing these plants and allow the biodiversity to return, we find out that the animals will seek out what we used to call weeds because they have nutrients that the other crops won't have. The weeds are intelligent donation, not just to the soil itself, but also to the animal, animals, the flora, the fauna, uh, interact for their own biodiversification. And so we are trying to stop using the word weeds and move to the word forbs. These are an incredibly important part of the feeding cycle for everything from the insects and microbiome all the way to your cattle. Agroforestry is a brilliant approach to a multi-layered canopy within a farm system. Eliminate the monoculture, not just in biodiversity, but also in height. Create the microenvironments within the forest and in the systems again carbon inputs, we're pushing humics and biochar and composting systems, carbon cycle stimulants with small carbon metabolites from the microbiome when necessary. But we're doing this in an effort to really recognize the patterns and possibilities of life to grow on the planet again. For those of you that aren't, don't feel like you're immediately attached to the agricultural system, it's extraordinary to find out that 40 million acres, or the third largest crop grown in the United States, right behind corn and soybean, is actually the backyard lawn. Lawn for, for the backyard and beyond uh, is chewing up an enormous amount of our Roundup applications and chemicals, and so our nonprofit has started the Play Free Project, Play standing for pesticide-free landscaping and youth. Our soccer fields and uh, our school uh, environments, as well as our transportation zones, are all heavy environments of Roundup and glyphosate spraying. And so this is a, a toolkit that we have in the Play Free Project that allows departments of transportation, school systems, and beyond to understand how to do this management organically without uh, chemical pesticides and herbicides. All of our money from all of our biotech and everything else is now flowing into so many projects, including Farmer's Footprint, which many of you have seen. If not, then please join us at farmersfootprint.us. We really see this as a global movement. Farmersfootprint.us was a, a film series that we've started, and we're excited to be telling the stories of farmers throughout the world in this one. Our first one uh, focuses on the Midwest, but our next projects are moving into the Polynesian Islands, Hawaii, and ultimately we're excited to be filming down here in Australia, New Zealand, and beyond, uh, certainly Central America, with some extraordinary stories of regeneration happening. And so we can't wait to make you guys part of this story, part of this emerging journey of biology happening through the biodiversification of the planet, ultimately so that we glow brighter, so that we become a more passionate and, and uh, turned on species. We want to see the lights go back on for Mother Earth. We want to see the lights go back on for our children and humanity as a whole. And we can't wait to have you guys part of that. We really appreciate your attention tonight. We thank you for all the travel that you did to come here and engage. I want to thank my whole team. This is, uh, none of this science can happen without a lot of people behind it. So we appreciate all of them back in Virginia. And uh, I would uh, stop here and go ahead and take questions and answers uh, for a few minutes. But before we dive into that, let's just do a couple of breaths, because some of you have to run right now, and uh, I'm grateful again for your presence. So in the same way that we started, I want to just close our eyes and be grateful for the breaths we've taken tonight, and for the ways in which my DNA has changed your DNA, and for the ways in which we've swapped genomics to the people next to you to become more enriched, more intelligent, more biodiverse for the community that you sought out tonight. So take four deep breaths and breathe in all those genomics. Thank you for coming tonight. Appreciate your attention. Everybody have safe travels on the way home. That was Breathe Your Biome by Zach Bush and Joost Becker. Anything But Square is released every Wednesday. To stay in touch, subscribe to our newsletter on fedsquare.com and browse our virtual square with plenty on offer from us and our partners, including NGV Australia, ACME, the Koori Heritage Trust, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>